So Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. First things first, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, please speak to us now uh, through your word, uh, by your Holy Spirit, uh, about our Saviour Jesus Christ, that we might know you uh, more clearly 
uh, and follow you more nearly. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know if you've seen those uh, compare the pair ads. You know, there's two people that are sitting on a park bench or something like that. Same age, same income, uh, same starting salary or same starting balance. But uh, one has his money in the right superannuation fund uh, and he ends up in 10 years down the track better off, you know, sort of the... I've uh, been practising that all week. Um, two people, two, two super funds, two outcomes... Uh, and Acts 12, I think, is a bit the same. There's these two characters that the story kind of uh, focuses on and, and kind of is pushed along by. Uh, there's these two angels that appear, and there's these two outcomes. There's Peter, who's thrown into prison and who's rescued by an angel from God. And then there's Herod, uh, the one who threw, threw Peter in jail, who uh, is struck down by an angel of God. There's two people, two angels, and two outcomes. But Acts 12, unlike the compare the pair ads, is not interested in kind of investing in two different superannuation funds and having a, a nice retirement. But the point of the comparison here is between one person who trusts in God, follows God, knows God, and one person who's going in a different direction. The first half of the chapter is given to Peter's escape. So Peter has been arrested by Herod and he's thrown into prison. And uh, Herod is clearly anxious that Peter not be allowed to get out. And so he's guarded, Peter's guarded around the clock by these four guards, four lots of four guards are kind of rotating shifts probably. And he's so worried, in fact, that Peter is chained permanently to two people. Uh, the situation for Peter doesn't look good because Herod has recently put someone else to death. He's put one of the other disciples, James, to death. And it looks as though Herod is intending here to do the same thing to Peter. He wants to put Peter on a show trial and then execute him. Peter's situation looks utterly hopeless. And so the church of that place does the only thing that it really can do. It gathers together to pray. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison. What was the church doing? But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. It's hard to imagine, I think, for us what that would be like. Imagine if someone in our church was arrested and put in prison and there was kind of very little prospect that they would be released. Imagine if Ben was arrested and put in prison for visiting people on the block. For some Christians in the world, that isn't a far-fetched idea. One couple who had been serving uh, as missionaries, as medical missionaries uh, in a country, were recently taken hostage by a militant group. What do you do in that kind of situation? You can't form a militia and go and get them back, can you? <laughs> the pitchforks and the shovels. And if the government's involved, if it's a country where it's a dictatorship or there's kind of widespread corruption, you're not going to have any success in the courts. What do you do? You're utterly powerless. What do you do in that kind of situation? You do the thing that these Christians did here in Acts 12. You pray. It's one of those moments, I think, of great clarity when we see the world as it really is rather than as we hope it to be. We see that the world is beyond our power. And that clarity ought to drive us to prayer, ought to drive us to fervent prayer, to... It, 
to, to prayer to the one person, God, our Heavenly Father, who can actually remedy the situation. John Stott writes about this chapter, prayer is the only power which the powerless possess. But it is a mighty power. And of course, while none of us might be thrown in prison today or tomorrow, we do face other obstacles, don't we, which are beyond our power. And the remedy to those is the same as the remedy in this situation. The remedy is to pray. Death, terminal illness, chronic sickness, depression, mental health problems, bankruptcy, poverty, marriage breakdown. In fact, you can pretty much put just about anything on that list. Because the truth is that while we might be able to work towards improving lots of different kinds of things we can guarantee nothing. We can't guarantee that we can fix any problem. In that sense, everything is ultimately beyond our power to fix or to cure, and the only real solution is to pray. But if powerlessness is kind of one thing that drives the church in Acts chapter 12 to pray... The other thing which drives them to prayer is the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel. In the proclamation of the gospel, please notice that the great catastrophe in this chapter is not that Peter might uh, Peter is thrown in prison and he might suffer or he might be put to death. I mean that's clearly part of their concern, but that's not the chief. Uh, concern here. Peter is one of the key leaders of the church. He's been appointed by Jesus as one of the, the kind of the, the, the fathers of the church, if you like, to get things booted off. They'd already lost one of the disciples, James. To lose another one so early in the peace would be catastrophic to the mission of the church. What would that do to the witness about Jesus? In other words, I don't think that these Christians were just gathering together purely to pray for Peter's release, you know, it's a, it's a tragedy that he's in prison. They were getting together to pray because it was a tragedy that he was in prison because it impeded the spread of the gospel. Their prayer was shaped by concern for the gospel and for the glory of God. It's a tragedy when anyone suffers. Of course it is. But it's an even, even greater tragedy when the gospel suffers when the glory of God isn't spread abroad. When our mentality is shaped by God's love for lost sinners, it shapes our prayers. It has to. It puts the rest of our lives into kind of a, a greater sense of proportion. What causes us the greatest anguish is that people are going to hell and that God isn't glorified as he should be. And so we pray. But what do we pray for? We pray for the obstacles to the gospel to, to be removed. When someone is sick, our great, our great anguish is not only that they suffer, but that the gospel doesn't go out. When someone is impeded from going to, to, uh, to a place to do mission work, our great anguish is not that they didn't fulfill their life dreams, but the gospel isn't, doesn't go out. When a church shrinks uh, to nothing, we don't grieve because, well, it was once a great place, wasn't it? It was once a great bastion of the you know, of, of fellowship and, and, and love for people. No, we grieve because it threatens the, the progress of the gospel.
And we pray that even through suffering and through hardship and through imprisonment and through death, that even in those things and through those things that God's glory might be done. That God's God's glory in Jesus might be made manifest. That's what shapes our prayers. It's that in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, in plenty and in want, in prison and at liberty that God's glory in Jesus Christ might be displayed, that God's glory in Jesus Christ might be known and received and believed in and trusted upon. Peter is thrown in prison and the church is driven to prayer. And in the next part of the account, God answers that prayer. They pray and God answers. On the very night before Herod is going to put Peter on this show trial and execute him, God sends an angel to rescue Peter from prison. It is, in every sense, this rescue, a miraculous escape. An angel appears in the prison cell to Peter. Uh, The chains binding Peter fall off. The guards who he was chained to don't even notice. Peter and the angel then walk past the other guards without them raising the alarm. They come to an iron gate. It opens by itself. And Peter and the angel hurry out into the streets. Peter, having been asleep in his prison cell, thinks that this is just a vision or a dream. It's not till he's outside in the streets that he sort of goes, wow, this is really happening. He goes to the house of some of these uh, local Christians who had gathered to pray for him and he knocks on the door and poor old Rhoda, the household servant, forever remembered by generations of Christians as uh, the poor lady who left uh, Peter at the door, Uh, she's so excited at at hearing him there that she doesn't open the door for him uh, and goes in, runs inside to tell all the others what's going on. But they don't believe her. They don't believe that God has answered their prayers. There they are praying for Peter's release. There he is at the door and they say, it must be an angel. I love that. There's two options. God could have answered the prayer or it could be an angel. (laughs) I'm going with the angel at the door. Uh, It's incredible, isn't it? But actually, (laughs) as ridiculous as it is, I think it says something about our propensity to disbelieve the power of God. We find it so hard to, to accept that God may actually answer our prayers. And even when they are answered, we struggle to believe that it's actually God who's done it. Both Peter and the praying Christians struggle to grasp what God is doing. Peter thinks he's having a dream and the angel's rescuing him from the prison. And the others who have gathered to pray can't believe what God has done. Apart from anything else, I think this chapter is a reminder that uh, God's answer to prayer isn't dependent on the strength of our faith. (laughs) These guys had no idea what was going on. They didn't think it was happening. And yet God would still do it. God doesn't say to Peter, well... You know, you're obviously not believing hard enough or to these Christians. You obviously don't think I'll do it. uh, Therefore, I'm not going to go. God just does it and their faith has to catch up with what God has done. But this whole episode is also a reminder of how prone we are to miss God's extraordinary answers to prayer. I've been reflecting uh, this week on lots of ways, I think, that God has... Uh, answered prayers in the last few years. Uh, But I thought, I I guess particularly about two, two have struck me. 
uh, that we have, the way that God has answered prayers that we've prayed as a church. So we prayed that God would raise up an assistant pastor to build his church here in Launceston. And there's been hiccups and stumbles along the way. And yet, without getting ahead of ourselves, Steve literally turned up at our door. At the end of last year, we started re-advertising the position. Uh, and I thought to myself, will I tell Steve that we're re-advertising the position? I thought to myself, oh, I don't know. I was praying about it. Steve rang me up and he said, Carl, I was praying this morning. And I thought, I should ring up Carl and see where they are in finding an assistant pastor. I said, Steve, has anyone talked to you? Has anyone told you that we're re-advertising? No, I didn't know we were, you were re-advertising. Are you re-advertising? I said, yes, we started re-advertising two days ago. What do you do with that? God certainly saved me the effort of deciding whether or not I should tell him that we were re-advertising. That was a relief. One less decision to make. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should call a person because of serendipitous events like that. I'm not suggesting that at all. We've done hard work. We've looked at the things, at the application, and we think that things stand up. And in fact, at the end of last year, uh, when the search committee was following up the referees, doing that checking process, one of the people on the search committee just made an offhanded comment like, you know, it's really helpful to speak to other people who aren't listed as referees to get their idea of what they think of someone. And I kid you not, two days later, on Christmas Day, someone came up to me who had no idea what we were doing and they said to me, I've just been thinking about the assistant pastor position, I think you should talk to Steve Nicholson. I think he's a wonderful man. He had a wonderful impact on my life. And he went on to enumerate his suitability for all the things that we're looking for in an assistant pastor. What do you make of that? Now, I'm not suggesting that that makes everything a lay-down misere or that our future will be kind of, you know, uninhibited bliss or anything like that. But I think we, we ought to be careful of being like the Christians in Acts 12. Peter's not outside, it's just an angel. God hasn't answered our prayer, we're just imagining it. Isn't that coincidental? The second example from our recent past is how a few years ago we toyed with the idea of planting another congregation. We decided at the time, rightly so, I think, for reasons not to go ahead with that. But one of the things we said was, we'll pray that the church will grow. And so we did. We prayed that the church would go, grow. And within months, we were running out of chairs on Sunday morning. We had 50 or 60 people join the church in nine months. It was exhausting. The elders, every time we meet, we always look at the people who have joined the church and all that kind of stuff. And every month, there would be new people that we have to catch up with. And it was wonderful. It was kind of, oh, it's tiring. The midweek playgroup is overflowing. Poor old Christy Lades. <laughs> Doesn't know what to do with herself. Utterly overwhelmed. It's so easy, I think, for us to ignore that. Who knows what God will do in the future? No one's saying that what has happened will continue on indefinitely or anything like that. Who knows what God 
will do in the future. What we have to worry about what God is, is what God is doing now. And we ought not to bury our head in the sand and say, like these Christians in Acts 12, Peter's not there. God couldn't possibly do that. It's just a normal fluctuation, you know. It's just these things happen, things go up, things go down. Because we fail to acknowledge what God has done, we fail to give God the glory for it. We dishonour God. To tragedy, actually. And because we fail to acknowledge what God has done, we fail to have confidence in God for the future. Well, if God's answered, if God's answered those prayers, who knows what God will answer in the future as well? The first half of this chapter recounts Peter's miraculous escape through one of God's angels. It recounts the story of the church in fervent prayer and it it recounts the story of God's miraculous and unexpected answer. But the second half of the chapter goes on to focus on Herod and it recounts the story of God's terrible judgment on Herod through one of his angels. We already know a little bit of Herod from the beginning of the chapter. He arrests Peter, he puts James to death, he's clearly opposed to God and to God's church, but he's obviously not a very nice man in other ways too. Once Herod discovers that Peter has escaped, he puts the soldiers who were looking after him to death. And then it turns out in verse 20 that Herod was angry with the people in the regions of Tyre and Sidon. Who knows why? He was causing trouble for them. And so they organise a meeting with Herod. And he, probably to try and impress them, arrives at this uh, meeting in royal regalia. He comes in these uh, impressive robes. And as he speaks to these people, they're so awestruck that they praise him as a god. The, uh, the first century Jose- uh, historian Josephus actually recounts the same story. He confirms the, uh, the historicity of this same story. And he says that, uh, that Herod came out in a, in a garment that was kind of a, a silver garment, woven presumably in silver, and it was kind of shining and, and flaming out in the, uh, uh, in the sun's rays. And the people, he says as well, were so awestruck that they praised Herod as a god. And both Josephus and the Bible agree that Herod is struck down by God for accepting the praise uh, praise as a God. We're told in verse 23, uh, immediately Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord, uh, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. He was struck down because he was robbing God of his glory and God had had enough. Herod was opposed to God's church, opposed to God's uh, plan to rescue people through Jesus, and Herod was now setting himself up in the place of God. This whole chapter is a reminder of the powerlessness of human pretense and human opposition to God. So Herod thinks he's this wonderful, powerful, majestic ruler. He murders James, he arrests Peter, he sets himself up as a god, But actually the truth is uh, that he's actually weak and powerless as this chapter shows him to be. Even with constant guarding, he can't keep Peter in prison. You wouldn't think it would be that hard, would you? It's just one man. He can't do that. And at the very moment that people are praising Herod as a god, it's when he's at his most weak and his most powerless. God comes in and strikes him down. The church seems powerless and is actually mighty through prayer. 
And Herod seems to be this powerful, majestic ruler, and he's actually weak and feeble. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of those realities, of that foundational truth as we look at the world around us. As we see governments closing their borders to the gospel and making conversion to Christianity illegal, we have to remind ourselves of the more fundamental reality in this chapter. That is, that those governments are weak and feeble and powerless in comparison to the power of God. As we see terrorist groups capturing, persecuting and killing Christians in Syria and Iraq, Nigeria and North Korea, wherever else, we have to remind ourselves of the fundamental reality of this chapter. That in comparison to the power of God, those militant groups, those terrorists are weak in comparison to the God who opens prisons and who raises the dead, they're weak. It's remarkable to hear this morning that there is a chance that one of the people taken prisoner recently will be released. It has been released. Extraordinary. How utterly unlikely. Praise a powerful God who opens the bars of prisons, not only through angels, but in opening the hearts of people who've taken them captive in the first place. And as we look around our country, as we see the Catholic Church in Tasmania charged uh, with discrimination for espousing a Christian view of marriage and the family, we have to remind ourselves of the fundamental reality of this chapter. That in comparison to the power of God, those who oppose God are weak. They won't win. They might win the battle, but they won't win the war. This chapter recounts Peter's miraculous escape through one of God's angels. It recounts the story of the church in fervent prayer and it recounts God's unexpected and miraculous answer. It recounts God's terrible judgment through one of his angels. It recounts God's protection of his people in the demise of Herod. But even though the story of this chapter is carried by the events surrounding Peter and Herod, The great purpose of this chapter is not to reflect on their individual lives as much as it is to show how through these two circumstances God was working out his great plan in Jesus. Verse 4 provides a kind of a summary statement of this whole chapter. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. And that same observation is repeated time and again in Acts. That's the big message of the book that the gospel will spread by God's power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The message of Acts and the message of this chapter is not, if you're caught in a bind, God will set you free. The message of the chapter is not that God will make your life pleasant now. That's for eternity. The message of this chapter is that God will make sure the gospel gets out, that nothing can stand in its way, that nothing can stand in God's way. Herod and his cronies try to stop the gospel, but nothing can hinder God from saving, by many or by few. Despite all the opposition, despite all the uncertainty that these Christians face, despite all the persecution, despite all the suffering, the gospel goes out by the power of the Spirit and the determination of God. 
The gospel goes out, people hear it, people believe, and people are saved. If you or I are ever imprisoned for telling people about Jesus, and I don't think that's an utterly unlikely proposition, if you or I are ever imprisoned for the gospel, we don't know whether we'll be like James or Peter, executed or set free from prison. If people oppose us, we don't know whether God will let that opposition go on for five years, ten years, or just for two weeks. But one thing we do know is that whatever happens, nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. Think of the missionary situations that we've heard about this morning. South Sudan is currently being torn apart by civil war and by poverty. Will that stop the spread of the gospel? No, it won't. It will not stop God's powerful plan because God is not powerful. God's great gospel plan will work out despite war and opposition. Quentin and Ashley have set their hearts on going uh, on mission, embarking on mission, giving themselves to the work of God in another place. And their plans have changed numerous times over the last few years because of obstacles and challenges. Will that stop the gospel going out? No. God is not powerless. God isn't on a holiday. God is not oblivious to what's going on. God's great gospel plan in Jesus will still go on unhindered. A missionary couple who has gone out from us reported this week that another couple serving in the country where they are was sent home by the government for sharing the gospel. Will that stop the spread of the gospel in that country? No. God's great gospel plan will still go on. And what about here in Australia? Will the rising tide of secularism and opposition to Christianity, will that stop the spread of the gospel? No. Churches might be sued into bankruptcy for discrimination. Schools might close, Christian schools might close, churches might close. But none of that will stop the spread of the gospel. The gospel will go out. People will still hear the good news of God, that Christ died for the ungodly to save us to God. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. Not prison bars, not a mad dictator, not secular liberalism, not my imprisonment or your imprisonment or my death or your death. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. The message of God about Jesus will continue to spread and change lives and call people out of darkness and into his marvellous light because that's God's great gospel plan and God is not powerless and God will do it. Let me pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we don't need to worry about our personal circumstances, that sick or well, in prison or at liberty, uh, hard-pressed or finding things easy, that regardless of our circumstances, Lord, that you are achieving what you have promised to do. to bless people from all nations in Jesus Christ, to call people out of darkness and into his marvellous light. And Lord, thank you that you have called many of us to know Christ and to believe in him. And thank you that we know that our eternity with you is assured and firm and cannot be stolen away from us. But Lord, help us to make known to others the great gift that you have given to us. And help us to be willing as Peter suffered and as Paul suffered and as missionaries around the world suffer, as Christians, ordinary Christians around the world suffer for knowing Christ. Help us not to worry about those things, to take all those sufferings in our stride for the sake of the gospel being made known to those who are going to hell. Lord, set our hearts on those things. Help us to pray with fervency that the obstacles to the gospel would be undone, that the power of your spirit at work in us and in this world would be plainly seen. And help us to see the answers to those prayers. And not to dishonour you by ignoring them. But to rejoice and give you praise. And as we do that, to be buoyed with confidence for the future. To know that whatever happens, people all over the world will hear about Jesus and be saved from an eternity without you. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.